0: You know, the first instinct is to kind of batten down the hatches and protect your turf. And just the vascular business has got too many people participating in it. It's just not realistic that you're going to do it on your own. You've got to build relationships, build partnerships.
1: Welcome to the second season of The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR. I'm Narina Dasoma, a fourth year medical student at the University of Illinois College of Medicine at Peoria.
2: And I'm Ben Rausch, a fourth year medical student at Western Michigan University, Homer Stryker MD School of Medicine. We work with a great team of students, residents, and attendings using the power of podcasts to explore topics in interventional radiology. As the host of today's episode, we hope you find it both educational and enjoyable.
1: We're very excited to introduce this next episode of The Sound of IR, in which Ben Rausch and I will host an episode about a hybrid private practice model with Dr. James Swischuck, an interventional radiologist in Peoria, Illinois at Central Illinois Radiological Associates, which is affiliated with OSF St. Francis Medical Center in Peoria, Illinois. Dr. Swischuck received his medical school education at Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas and completed both his diagnostic radiology residency along with his vascular and interventional radiology fellowship at University of Miami Jackson Memorial Hospital. So Ben, what were some of your favorite parts of this episode?
2: I really liked this episode a lot because I felt like it gave a perspective to medical students of a different sort of private practice model that many of them have probably never seen, depending on what medical school they're coming from.
1: I agree. I think this was a great example of how, um, for example, the vascular surgeons and interventional radiologists could work together to create something like the Vascular Institute or the VI Clinic, which he refers to in the podcast. Um, I loved his enthusiasm about the process of building that clinic and collaborating with um, physicians from different specialties.
2: Definitely. I think also seeing his sort of path that he's taken from the beginning of his education to seeing a sort of practice that he wanted to emulate in Miami vascular. And now you can see sort of the fruition of that in in what he's created. While the reasons he became so clinical might seem like what we we sort of know as medical students and what we've learned from SIR of the good reasons for being clinical, and those don't necessarily uh, fit with exactly why he did it, which as our listeners will find out.
1: Yes, and another whole component is the interaction between his diagnostic radiology partners and how that all played into um, how they practice. So I think this will be a great episode for our listeners, and I'm, I'm excited for everyone to hear what Dr. Swishchuk has to say.
2: Definitely. So Noreena, as we sort of jump into this episode about different private practice models, I'm curious what your experience has been being there at University of Illinois at Peoria and experiencing being educated under this model.
1: Yeah. So as I've only had my home rotation so far um, and haven't really had any away rotations yet, this is pretty much all that I know in terms of um, medical student resident education within radiology, both diagnostic and interventional. And um, what I can say about this hybrid private practice model is that they've built their practice so that they can run without any trainees. Um, They don't need residents. They don't need fellows to complete the work. So as a medical student, it's wonderful because the fellows have time and they're not really bogged down with little menial tasks. So um, the fellows are just so happy. and, And same with the residents. Uh, but we work mostly with the fellows on IR um, and they they're just happier. Um, They're doing the cool procedures that they signed up that they want to do, that they've signed up to do as an IR. And so they're getting a lot of fulfillment from their training, which translates down to the medical students. So they've spent a lot of one-on-one time with us teaching us how to do procedures. Um, So I think um, it's been a great place to learn.
2: Definitely. Yeah. Myself, I've, Been able to experience a couple rotations now in different uh, practice models, both academic and here, Christiana in Delaware, where I'm at now. It's a very similar um, hybrid model, so to speak. You know, I've definitely seen the positives of this sort of model in in a similar fashion, and you know, that's not to say that from what we're saying in this interview, that the, there's something inherently wrong with the academic model. I think there's positives to both and being exposed to both kind of gives you a better idea of, of what you want to train in.
1: I completely agree. And one I should bring up probably some of the downsides, just realistically, you know, these IRs are so um, busy and they don't necessarily have uh, the research going on, of course, that an academic institution would have. So um there certainly aren't any clinical trials that are um, being done. So there, there is, of course, um, the pros and cons to any um, teaching um, facility and practice model.
2: For sure. Yeah, I think that's common um, wherever you end up training or, you know, whatever you're exposed to. Um, but, but overall, I think this should be a pretty interesting episode.
1: Absolutely. I'm excited for everyone to tune into this one.
2: And here's our interview.
1: Dr. Swischek, thank you for speaking with us today.
0: Well, thanks for having me. Hope I have something interesting to say to you guys.
1: Oh, I'm sure you will. Um, so, just to get us started off, we'd love to hear a little bit about how you got here. Um, what made you decide to become an interventional radiologist?
0: Well, when I first went into it, you know, I don't know if you're aware, but my dad is a pediatric radiologist. In fact, he still practices down at UTMB, and you know, so I kind of grew up in a Environment where radiology was a large part of it. He was a guy that wrote a lot of textbooks. I used to see him working on them at home. You know, as I went to college, I thought, okay, medicine doesn't sound too bad. And with an eye for radiology, I must say, when I went into radiology, I, I was not one of those individuals that, you know, had targeted necessarily IR. I knew I was somebody who liked working with my hands. Patient contact was something I wasn't even certain about. But then as I progressed through, the radiology residency, probably my third year, I realized, yeah, this is, I enjoyed this and that was what I was going to do. I trained at uh, medical school. I went to University of Texas Medical Branch and then I went to the University of Miami where I did my diagnostic radiology and I did my fellowship, which was at a fairly large hospital, 1,600 beds at Jackson Memorial Hospital. And uh, there was the VA hospital we also worked in as interventionalists. I came to... Arrive in Peoria because after I finished my fellowship, I worked for about two years in Tampa and it wasn't the greatest environment. You know, the, the medical environment in Florida was certainly more volatile than up here as far as group purchases, hospital takeovers and just partnership tracks were full of potholes at times. Anyway, I, I found myself in a group that uh, decided to sell the practice to a publicly held company and I was like, Uh, I don't really want any part of that. I happen to know the neurointerventionist that was up here in Peoria. And, uh, you know, there was a time in my life where I never thought I'd drive across the Midwest, let alone live here. But now I've been here 21 years. Anyway, I came to interview just to see what it was like. And when I saw the practice, it was a really good practice at that point. They were doing a lot of vascular work. They were starting to dabble in some clinical work. They had employed an APN. But more importantly, it was a group that I... I saw they were eager to get better, so it just really looked like a good opportunity. So I just that's how I ended up here.
1: So. Oh, we're glad that you're here. I know um, the hospital really holds interventional radiology um, really highly. So um, what you've created as a group has been phenomenal. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about um, Central Illinois Radiological Associates, CIRA? That's uh, the private practice.
0: Yeah. Sierra is actually now a group that has about 70, 70 plus radiologists plus some independent contractors that we use. We actually utilize seven APMs. It's, it is at its core a private practice group. Now, having said that, it is made up of two divisions. There's one that's in the northern part of central Illinois and is kind of the hub of the spoke wheel is St. Francis Medical Center, which is where I work at. And then there's a division that's further south in Springfield. Um, and uh, the two sections operate fairly independently. But, you know, when you look under the hood, we're all part of the same group. As I said, it is private practice. However, both divisions have components that do run uh, or participate in residencies. So, uh, And here at St. Francis, which is pretty much where I work at exclusively, which is about a 750-bed hospital, uh, there's a residency program that takes four residents a year, and then our IR fellowship takes uh, two fellows per year. Now, having said that, yes, my life is uh, behind-the-scenes private practice, but day in, day out, we always have residents, we have fellows in the department, so it does have that academic feel. But there are many parts of our group, because our group participates in oh, 22 hospitals and several outpatient facilities. So we have components of our practice that are just pure private practice. I mean, guys that really um, have very little to do with any of the teaching program.
2: Interesting. Uh, Dr. Soschek, I'd like to know a little more. Has this group always uh, had an academic portion to it, or, or is that a newer development in the practice?
0: Well, I joined the group in 96, and they already had the residency in program. And I must say, I will tell you this, the St. Francis Medical Center is the main teaching hospital for the University of Illinois College of Medicine at Peoria. When I came here, the residency was probably uh, four years um, established. And it was actually established by one of my IR partners, Dr. Terry Brady. And he's the one that came and kind of brought the energy to do that. Uh, There were already residency programs here at the hospital, you know, more of the core residencies like surgery and medicine. And so the hospital, yes, for a number of years has had the teaching elements. We all have clinical appointments to the university. We're not university employees. But, yeah, ever since I've been here, yeah, the teaching environment has been there.
2: Interesting. And when you decided to come to Central Illinois and even before that, um, was academia something you wanted to be involved in? (laughs) Uh. No, the short answer to that question is no. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the long answer?
0: <laughs> long answer? When I trained at University of Miami, uh, one of the benefits was that another program across town, which at the time was um, Miami Vascular Institute, which is now Miami Cardiovascular Institute, was affiliated with our program. That's how they had their accreditation was through the University of Miami. So I got to spend some time there. And boy, that was just an absolute eye-opener. I mean, here, you were essentially in a community hospital full of nothing but private practice physicians. And at the same time, you had this fellowship that was a premier fellowship in that environment, you know, something I just had never seen, never heard of. And so when I saw that, boy, I was like, man, this is the way to do it. You know, I mean, it's, it's a little more streamlined. You have Many times the benefits of private practice, which is self-governance, you know, even at that time, income was typically better. I think income differences have narrowed, you know, over the years. But boy, I saw that and I said, Hey, that is what I want to do. Uh, the first job I took in Tampa, I, I tried to add the clinical element, but, but really the teaching element wasn't there. And that's, so when I came to, to Peoria and I plopped down in a program that uh number one already had a residency program, had an affiliation with the university, but was private practice, you know, you could already see the wheels turning, right? Yeah. And then on top of that they had I had a real interest in the clinical practice, um, because I had seen the success of that with the group in Miami. And I could just tell that was the future, you know, and and they were interested in that, you know, and then when I brought ideas of having a clinic, they were very interested in that. And and it seemed like they had a group that was going to allow that to happen. So, yeah, short answer was I looking to work at a university? No, I was not. Was I looking for something that where private practice could excel at this and do this combo practice? Yeah, that is what I was looking for and that's what I found here and that's what we continue to have yeah, here. I've been here
2: now 20 almost 22 years. So, that's that's interesting. I it, it's fascinating to hear you talk about Miami Vascular. I mean, I think a lot of students interested in IR have at least heard about it or know something about it. But it's interesting to hear you talk about that institution and the things you liked about it and see how you've implemented that. Even, you know, even though you guys weren't necessarily the first to do that, or maybe even Miami wasn't, you guys definitely were early to the game of clinical IR, you know, talking in the mid-90s. Um, so that's that's fascinating to hear.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I, I just remember leaving that place and I'm going, oh my gosh, you know, he- typical radiology group, right? You don't bring any patients to the hospital, you're contracted, you know, all the radiologists have this sort of built-in vulnerability that if they lose their contract at any moment, things could blow up on them. And then here was this hospital where there was a radiologist who was just, uh, you know, just had the place in the palm of his hand, probably the most, I don't know, powerful is the right word, but the most influential physician was certainly one of them in the hospital. You know, I was like, wow, there's something here, you know, and, The reason was, at least I came to this conclusion, I don't know if I'm right or wrong, is that he really brought a program. He brought something that added value to that hospital, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, if you think about it, you you can sort of do that in academics, but when you do it in a private hospital, I mean, you're really bringing something that's totally different, something that's sellable. Like a partner of mine used to say, Dr. Smouse, you know, you don't sell the steak, you sell the sizzle, you know, and it was something that was... (laughs) That was... You know it was unique and 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 you know, I saw this hospital and that group be extremely successful, have a fellowship program in a very competitive market. you know, and I was like, "Hey, there's something there." So yeah, that was certainly part of the inspiration.
2: yeah. do you feel that um being a private group, you guys were able to implement such a clinical practice easier than if you, you know, let's say this is the exact same situation? at the exact same time, and you went to your average academic institution and wanted to implement those changes. From your experience of what you know, do you feel like at that time period, you would have been able to implement those changes in the same way? God,
0: that's a good question. Uh, I will tell you this. At the time, certainly decision-making, when I was in this group, because it was not near as big, was fairly streamlined. So Mm -hmm. we could make money-spending decisions fairly quickly. Just do it. In an academic institution, a pure academic institution at that time, I just don't even think it was part of the agenda, to be honest. you know, I mean, when I look back at the program that I trained in, I mean, this was, this is was how it was structured. This was the kind of clinical work we did. I never did a single H&P. Any of the outpatient vascular procedures would literally come in and have a surgical resident do the H&P. I would write my procedure note and maybe a little pre-procedure note. And then all the post-op orders were done by the surgery resident and then discharged by them you know so yeah starting a clinic in that setting i just don't even think was part of the vocabulary so i'm sure there would have been some resistance there because you know it all costs money and physician time and 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 plus i just think in radiology to have a successful model doing clinical work you have to use apns you know you can't just you know we have the luxury I, i don't know if it's luxury is the right word but our work style, at least formally, was you come in, you do a bunch of procedures, and you go home, you know, so you're always producing revenue. So all of a sudden, take a physician and put them into this clinical role doing e charges, you know, your productivities, as any other specialty knows, goes way down. And so when you're sitting there talking to other partners that are also imagers that are producing, you know, real revenue and, and have very little overhead, um, it, it's hard to convince them you're going to use physician time to do that in APN. Uh, and, you know, but the APN would have been just a totally new thing. So, I think it would have been hard to have that progressive attitude at that time in a purely academic setting. And plus, you know, to some extent, in the academic settings, things are uh, they're just done a certain way. You know, you don't have the competitive groups in there, and it's just the way things are done. You know, I was no surprised, to be honest, in some of the academic set, settings, it's just you were a captive audience as a refer. You know, you had to use that service, and, and many times you didn't have to do anything all that special to have the patients keep coming. You know.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate your uh, explanation of that. Personally, the the history of the of the of the field of interventional radiology really really interests me, and uh, is something I feel like isn't explored much uh, for medical students.
0: Yeah, you know, and you know the thing too to remember the the value of the clinical practice is different than it was back then. Hmm. But back then the biggest knock when you didn't do an H and P or see the patient was the surgeon saying, ah, you know, you get to do all the fun stuff while well, I got to do the H and P. And so you were just kind of stepping up to the plate more or less to do the clinical work. And most of the time, the surgeons would see that as refreshing and good. You know, every once in a while you'd have one that wanted patient control and they didn't want to do that. But, um, That was really what you were doing with your clinical practice. You were saying, hey, listen, I'm treating these patients, and so therefore I need to become a little bit more involved clinically than just waiting for somebody to ask me to do
1: something.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, over the years, it's, it's totally changed, you know, because somewhere along that time period, all of a sudden came the other people wanting to do it. And keep in mind, the vascular surgeons were really the last group to jump on board with all this endovascular stuff. Because remember, they were the guys operating. This stuff was a threat sort of a threat to them until it was so painfully obvious to see that their traditional practice was, was withering away and that they really couldn't be a vascular specialist without doing it, you know. So they were some sort of the last on board, but before them, you know, you had certainly the cardiologists were in there. So now it is it is one of the most competitive subspecialties that are out there. I mean, you have so many different physicians that will want to do this. CV surgeons, vascular surgeons. Right. Nephrologists are uh, doing it, you know. And so now when you do your clinical activity, you're doing it so that you can create a front door so that people, i.e. primary care docs, can send you a patient just as easily as they can send it to somebody else. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and see, before, when you spent your clinical time, you spent, when we first got started on it, the clinical time was all spent in the hospital, you know, doing the h and and doing the rounds. You know, now our rounds are a bunch of tubes and our APNs are more than capable of doing this. And so the clinical presence has totally shifted. The, the bang for your buck on your clinical presence now is the clinic. You know, the clinic is that first encounter and then doing consults in the hospital, you know, and using APNs to kind of handle other duties is, is a good way to do it. You know, but it's, yeah, it's just become way more competitive. You got to keep the same language as the other docs. And that means you got to have a front door, front doors is the clinic. That's where you meet your patients. That's where your patients remember your name. Definitely,
1: Doctor Swischek, that is just perfect. I was—I know Ben and I have talked about this uh, numerous times with the clinic and the, the way you utilize APNs in your practice are um, two fascinating things um, about how special your practice is. So, could you please define how you use APNs in your practice and what their role is? And then uh, after that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how the um, clinics were created. Um, And also, for some of our uh, newer listeners who might not know um, what an APN is, if you could define also what an APN is, uh, because we have listeners that are um, pre-med and medical students, uh, too.
0: Yes, and, and we're probably being a little too exclusive by saying APN. APN stands for Advanced Practice Nurse. So, these are people that are viewed as providers now. Okay, They can actually hang a shingle have to have some collaborative agreement with a doctor don't have to practice in the office. And the other group of people, too, that can serve the very same function are PAs, physician assistants. And in my opinion, both, although they have very different training styles, they both can do the same kind of work. Now, when we first started to use an APNs and PAs, uh, really our emphasis was on the clinical work. You know, we really didn't need other people doing procedures. We were doing all of them. We weren't as inundated with a lot of minor procedures, which we find ourselves doing more and more these days. And and really, that resource was, for many years, strictly dedicated to clinical work. It was basically to kind of shore up the gaps in the time that we had to devote to that. All right, And I would say still, to this day, that's the majority of what they do. We have recently had them start doing some minor procedures, more or less for lack of a better way to put it than to make our life a little easier, Mm -hmm. focus more on bigger procedures. But they still, the the bulk of their work in our group is to do uh, a lot of the clinical work. So we have one person, one of the APNs. I'm using the word APN because all of our people right now happen to be APNs. But again, it could be a physician as well. Yeah, sure. Sure. One of them comes in and is involved in rounds. Another one does all the inpatient consults. Another one does all the outpatients that are coming in, you know, that need H and P's and, and many of those patients we've never seen before. So that's a consult. And then we usually have one that's in the afternoon that does clinic. We do clinic five days a week in the afternoon. So they go over there and do that.
2: Interesting. So where, where do the, stu- the trainees fit into that because I I think the the use of mid-level providers is fantastic because it is able to sort of extend your abilities uh, clinically but the question I always have is how do you how do you balance the use of these APNs with training and and the the residents and fellows you have
0: yeah good question here's the thing all I can say is we got two fellows we made the fellows do all that work that's all one of them would be doing all day long from that standpoint it, it wouldn't work out okay so where do our fellows get that work? Well, they do spend time in the clinic. Certainly on the weekends, they do all the consults. So on any given weekend, there's all the consults. They do some of the later consults. They do the consults in the middle of the night, obviously the emergent ones, and they do some rounding. You know, currently, it's a one-year fellowship. There's a lot to get under your belt. And so it's hard to take huge blocks of time. Now, I know there are other programs that just charge them with doing that, and they may have the numbers of fellows to support that. But philosophically, this is also the way I kind of look at it. We try to teach them and hope we show them a system that is portable to the radiology community at large. Mm -hmm. Because coming out and saying, hey, I'm going to spend half my day doing H&Ps and sitting in a clinic, especially for a group where you're trying to convince them that you need to do the clinical activity, is probably a bit much for them to swallow, you know. Yeah. Whereas if you come from a program like ours, where you have all these APNs, and, and and I really believe our program uh, is a fairly well-oiled machine, and you just see how it works, and you see how valuable they are, and you see how they really, they, they just they're, they're like the they're like the mortar between the bricks, you know, they really make it work. And to me, that's that's a portable work style that will work for a radiology group. And and by the way, increasingly even in other specialties, as you have now see in the hospital, they're all using APNs for these very same reasons.
2: I think that's one of the things that during my away rotations this summer, I've seen the use of these mid-levels in different ways. And, and the way you describe is definitely very efficient and and also while still allowing um, a good balance of clinical training to uh, to fellows and, and residents and whatnot.
0: Yeah. And here here's the thing. We will, of course, in 2020, we will go to the new fellowship program and we'll have essentially four fellows a year. And this is just me talking off the top of my head. I don't see a ton of change on how the clinical stuff is handled in the hospital. But if I had to say where we are going to augment their clinical time, is definitely going to be in the clinic. I mean, we'll get more formal about, Hey, Thursday's are your day, you know, you're doing it two days a month, something like that. Because again, this just goes back to the fact that having done this for a number of years, And seeing where you get your bang for your buck on your clinical time, it is without a doubt it's in the clinic. Ah.
1: So one thing that I wanted to follow up um, on that was, um, one thing, we have recently a new interventional radiology attending. And so his perspective on the program has been amazing. And just today he told me that, um, he's amazed that the attendings will do all the procedures. The residents um, and fellows aren't expected to do all the small procedures, and the attendings only do the big procedures. Um, basically, this program could stand alone without any trainees, and I think that's an incredible thing for the residents and fellows, that it really um, allows them to maximize their learning opportunities and not just be bogged down in um menial tasks, um, like we were just talking about doing um, consults and rounding. And so the fact that attendings will even offer to do a smaller procedure so that the fellows can have more experience with the larger procedures is is unique to Peoria, I think.
0: Yes, we don't really have a choice. You know, I'd like to be noble about it, but we don't have a choice. We (laughs) we through the day, you know. And, you know, starting with private practice, and, you know, there have been times where fellows – we're lean, you know. In fact, I can remember about 12 years ago, we had no fellow for the year. So we can function like that. And, we, and for many years, we'd have just one. Uh, now, as of late, luckily, there's there's been two. But, no, we are not entirely dependent. I, I did my fair share of paracentesis yesterday. I will assure you that.
2: <laughs> so, so you mentioned that your mid-levels or your APNs do some procedures at your institution. What, what do you guys have the APNs doing? How is that working?
0: Right now, they're doing fairly simple ones like paracentesis and thoracentesis. I'll be honest. Part of the issue has just been with the interpretation of regulatory issues by the hospital. Uh, are we at a point where we'd like them to do more? I don't know that we need them to do more right now. You know, uh, the answer to the question is yes. I'd like them to do more and they are increasingly right now. I would say we kind of do it to make our life easier and then. Practices are always growing, and when more resources are needed, we'd probably just reintroduce that whole notion and see if they're interested.
2: And uh, how many attendings are part of your group? Um, we have five IR attendings
0: right now. We just got nice. a new one, so my number's right there. We we have two guys at the new neurointerventional. They don't really participate much in the teaching program, but but they do. You know, the full gamut of high level neurointerventional stuff.
2: Ah, oh, I see. So those two are a part of your group, the NeuroIR guys, and do they cover all the stroke call, or yes. do you guys participate in that?
0: I have in the past. I haven't done it for many years. I almost found it to be kind of a thankless job. <laughs> it was, wasn't anything I was terribly interested in. I, I didn't mind doing it at the time. It kind of fell by the wayside, and I was more than happy to... uh have that happen. So I don't think there's any one of the IR docs right now that are that are helping with the stroke call. You know, the stroke call used to be very busy. Now it's a little less so. I think you know the algorithms for managing these patients before they hit the door here are probably better, and these patients are getting seen quicker and treated quicker. You know, with IV TPA, etc. So,
2: yeah, interesting.
1: Um, yeah, this is a good opportunity for the listeners to hear a little more about the, your scope of practice. Um, you really at all in Peoria, so could you talk, talk a little bit about um, the different types of procedures and how you distribute that among interventional radiologists within, within the group?
0: We do really any procedure that would be typical. We don't have a large TIPS volume. Probably our, the thing that we're most known for is the volume of vascular work that we do, and if we, we can go into that a little bit, how that occurred later, if you'd like. And then cancer work was in the past week, but that has definitely increased. We've had new attendings come in that have greatly improved it. We've also had the addition at our hospital of a new hepatologist that used to direct one of the large transplant programs up in the Chicago area. And so he has ties with all these transplant centers. And so although we don't do liver transplants here, he certainly does a lot more management for these liver patients than groups had in the past. So that has you know, dramatically improved our, our work on the tumor front. And so really the program is fairly well rounded. I mean, we're not doing cancer work like a cancer center, but we're still doing it on a near daily basis. So um but again, vascular is obviously we've dedicated clinical time and and resources to that. Kind of, you know, the clinic and having this group of patients we worked on has sort of even taken us through some lean times.
1: Yeah, I think that's just such an amazing feature um, in Peoria, the fact that you have so many vascular cases.
0: So after this, in a sense, implosion of the vascular surgery group that was employed by the cardiology group, uh, really all the groups that were also performing vascular work kind of sat down, kind of with this system, the St. Francis System Administration, which included physicians at the administrative level, kind of participating in this discussion on what to come up with the new BI. We all agreed that really to make this work, we had to get rid of some of the competitive elements. And in order to do that, it really had to be at the core of it, a business arrangement. In other words, we all had to be working under the same entity. So they came up with the BI, which actually has its own identification numbers, billing numbers with care. And we all worked through that system. Uh, we came up with rates for, as I said, for our time, our time in clinic, our RBUs. So anything that we do essentially gets billed through the BI and then CIRA is paid based on that. And it really, you know what it did? It just, it kind of was like taking an element of our practice and becoming a hospital employee, if you think about it. You know, so for the vascular work, yes, I work for St. Francis. Although the benefit is I still am a CIRA radiologist. So day in, day out, that's who I answer to. Um so the once that was established and we, and we agreed in upon the business deal, what the system, the OSF system, so this oversees all the hospital systems, they said, listen, what you should really do is once you form this business entity, go to the hospital and say you want an exclusive contract to form these vascular procedures. And we did that, and it passed almost unanimously. So now the services are done on an exclusive basis, and that means that anyone coming into the community in order to perform, to perform vascular services has to be through the VI. And that's very significant. And this is, this is why, because you know, when, when the VI starts and the way you approach it, because you're not in it yet, it hasn't been formed, you, you know, just the natural tendencies have you guard up, protect yourself, protect yourself from everything in the future. And then all of a sudden, once you become involved and you see it's working all of a sudden it's like, it's like, the chairs t- change around the table. Everything's different. All of a sudden you realize, Hey, this is my safe harbor. Everybody's working well together. The last thing anybody needs from any particular group is somebody rocking the boat, you know? So in other words, it's not an, it's not in cardiology's best interest to bring in somebody new that isn't going to play ball. It's not in our best interest, you know, to have somebody that's going to come in and not play the ball. And so really, well, I'll tell you, it took, a, it took a environment that was so volatile and it just made it it just calmed the water down and it really made it so much more enjoyable to work. And it's like the first time in my career, where you don't feel like you're looking over your shoulder to see who's the next guy coming in town, you know, whether they're major player or just an ankle biter, you know,
1: I think it's incredible what you've, what you've all created together. And it's just a great example. I know there's a lot of discussion about turf wars. So this is just a perfect example of how it can be done.
0: Yes. I, I will say this. It, you know, some people go and, and, you, you know, the first instinct is to kind of batten down the hatches and protect your turf. And it's just the, the vascular business has got too many people participating in it. It's just not realistic that you're going to do it on your own. You've got to build relationships, build partnerships. And it may not be with everybody because that's pretty hard to do. I mean, we're lucky right now. Everybody's on board here with it, but it's not always been that way. But you usually, if you look hard enough, you can find somebody to, to work with and, and be on the same page, you know, keep keep in mind that, you know, if you're a vascular specialist and you're a surgeon and you're in a group with a bunch of general surgeons, I mean, in a way you're kind of like the IR doc in the radiology group, you know, it's you're, you're sort of a little bit of a round peg in a square hole. Well, if you're a solo vascular specialist in a group of general surgeons, well, you may be the only guy doing that and therefore you're not getting that kind of support within your group or camaraderie even. And so you'll find all of a sudden that you might have a vascular surgeon in a group and you're the interventional radiologist in the radiology group. You got more in common with each other than even your own respective partner.
2: Now, with that division of labor for vascular cases, does it always work as like a sort of weekly conference or do you guys take certain types of, of cases more often? Or is it like it is in many places between you and the other specialties in the vascular institute?
0: I should tell you who makes up the VI because obviously the IR docs are in it. We also have some C B surgeons that are in it. We have a vascular surgeon that's in it and we have at least two cardiologists that are in it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And really, if you look at how patients are divvied up, there isn't a whole lot of difference in how inpatient consults are divvied up. I mean, if somebody wants you on the case, they'll get you, you know, the VI isn't going to route them to somebody that they don't want. Um, and that hasn't changed. But you know, if you really look at everybody's stake in the VI, it's really your clinic time. And that is basically not doled out willy-nilly. I mean, if you are asking for clinic time, it has to be for good reason. And so the way patients are handled in the clinic, I'll focus on that, because that's really how the patients are doled out and it's kept is if somebody wants you specifically, yes, they will go to your clinic. All right. However, if it's one of the myriad of, primary care docs that are in the OSF system that are essentially working through the electronic medical record system, EPIC, meaning, i.e., they're clicking and pushing buttons, and they want life to be easy. Those just come in the in the BI, and whoever's up and has time, it's it's kind of first come, first serve, just to get the patients in there. So clearly, when we joined the BI, we got patients from primary care docs that we had never received patients from, by by and large, because our old system was a separate medical record system, and they really had no easy access to it. You know. So that kind of, that's what keeps it fair and keeps everybody stake in it, you know, and, and the governance of the VI is a advisory committee that is made up of some interventional radiologists, some cardiologists, vascular surgeons, some administrative people, some administrative physicians that have nothing to do with vascular business. And I, and and this has been going on now, I would say three years and, and there is, it's really been quite functional, at least from political standpoint and getting patients in there there are a few little glitches that you find on where patients should go but those are minor things and easy to work out to be quite honest
2: that's awesome i've only come across a similar thing uh that i've at least even just heard of in the ir world a handful of times i know university of michigan has a similar idea with their cardiovascular institute and the sort of division of labor um for those patients but but yeah i think uh It's incredible what you've been able to do on the private practice level, creating that.
0: I think if I really have to look back, what has always kept us as people at the table with some chips to play, so to speak, is the fact that we've had that clinic. So even when the referrals weren't coming in, we had this group of patients that we were working on, you know, 200 vascular patients. So we're always doing work. We're always somebody to be included in the discussion, you know, rather than somebody whose practice had been decimated and... They came to the table and they wanted to participate, but they weren't contributing any patients. You know that can be a tougher hurdle. You know,
1: yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, and to follow up on that, how when you were creating the Vascular Institute or the VI, um, and I know you also have an interventional oncology clinic as well, and we could talk a little bit more about that later. Um but how did the diagnostic radiologists within your private practice respond to the creation of these clinics?
0: Oh my god, they loved it. And here's why. Money. Okay. <laughs> and let me step back because I think Noreen you had mentioned, you know, about the clinic and its development. You know, when we first started the clinic, we were essentially borrowing a room in an ultrasound department and seeing our patients first, you know. We just had to check the schedule, get ahead of the procedure and put them on the schedule. Then we went to renting a room from some primary care docs. I think we were literally paying $500 a month for this room. And then we used our APNs to even handle our medical records. Then we had office space in a, in a facility that was essentially a non-invasive lab run by the surgeons. We were at one point, we were their only customers and we ran our clinic in that same building. And then The last iteration of our clinic prior to our current clinics was when we actually rented our own space, you know. And when we did that, all of a sudden, you had to explain this overhead that was about $400,000. Now, of course, we were generating some revenue in there with veins and ultrasound procedures. But, you know, that kind of overhead for diagnostic radiologists like in my group that we don't even own our own outpatient centers. I mean, our overhead is is low i mean when you go to a clinician their overhead can be as high as 40 50% i think our overhead for our group is running in the high teens you know so when you get an office it has all that all that overhead it's just to them they, they it's they don't even want to think about it you know it's 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 not you know cuz otherwise their business model is hey there's an empty seat you go sit in front of a monitor and you make money all day <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> yeah you
0: know and and i've even been to meetings where they wanted to throw our salaries on the expense of the clinic, right? And had partners say, Oh my God, you guys are hemorrhaging in there financially hemorrhaging. And I go to them and I said, you know, but your argument is like going to a surgeon and saying, Hey, I found the key to this the key to your financial success is you, you keep your practice. But the only thing you gotta do is get rid of the clinic and then you'll be good. You know, I mean, it's idiotic. <laughs> anyway, when the VI came and part of it was that our, clinic was essentially going to dissolve and be moved in one part into the vascular clinic, which we essentially just get paid to go there and see patients. And then we were able to do our oncology clinic in a separate building that is also owned by the hospital because they're developing cancer services. We all of a sudden basically got rid of all of our overhead other than some nursing personnel and some APMs going in there. So the group loved it. I mean, it was just like, you know, the music to their ears.
1: So just to transition a little to the Interventional Oncology Clinic, um, how does uh, that differ from VI and who is a, a part of the Interventional Oncology Clinic? Uh,
0: really, uh, all of us, except for maybe uh, Dr. Brady participated in that. That sees, in general, fewer patients. The vascular clinic is quite busy, is full, is full out four weeks. Um, And a full clinic for us in an afternoon would be 12. We're going to increase that to probably 16 patients in an afternoon, which means you're, you know, you're having to get through them pretty quick. The oncology clinic, not as many patients, but many times there's a lot more imaging to look at on those. It is still run by the docs. Our own APNs go over there. It's a, it's a, it's a different business arrangement. The hospital has found a way to build a facility component for our clinic visit. And we can then charge. I believe it's a smaller uh, E and M charge for our time. So that's a very simple, straightforward business arrangement. Totally different than the VI. However, the benefit of both of those is that since we are in a clinic or facility that is, you know, run by OSF, it's an OSF facility. Really, one of the big benefits is we have this access to Epic, you know, which is our medical record system. Uh, you know, because if we were in our own office as we were before, and we wanted to use Epic just so that everybody could see what we were doing, what we were doing, and making it easier for referrals. I mean, there's a per head fee that was exorbitant. I mean, yeah. it was going to be a hundred thousand dollar purchase with maintenance. And so, if you look at what we're getting paid. For these clinic times or our arrangements with the oncology clinic. So let's take the BI, I get paid for my time there. But that's that's really payment that's free and clear of any overhead, you know, which is not trivial because the clinic is high overhead. You know, that's where you get a forty, fifty percent overhead. If you go to the oncology clinic, our overhead is pretty minimal. We're not making money hand over fist over there, that's for sure. Just sort of paying for the people that are over there, if that. But when you start looking at things like, well, you're on Epic now and, you're, and you don't have to pay for that. Well, you know, then it's, it's a win, you know. It's a no-brainer, you know.
1: Yeah. It's almost reason alone to have a clinic is having access to Epic to see all your patients.
0: Yes. And I can tell you that, that, that those recipes are so much easier for your diagnostic partners to handle. <laughs> uh, by the way,
2: we talked a little bit about the relationship between IR and DR in your practice, but I'm curious uh, how that relationship works out on the trainee side of things. The, the DR residents that you've had um, historically in your, in your uh, residency, how often are they um, working with your practice and, and how has that worked out?
0: Well, you know, they, they all have to do their, their rotations
2: in the past.
0: Um, I would say their participation on the service was extremely variable, you know, As you can imagine, there are just a number of residents that, you know, IR is just not what they wanted to do, and that's okay. And they would just kind of stand around and participate kind of on a minimal level, and and that was fine. It didn't even really bother us that much, but uh, we've become a a bit more structured, and that, mainly driven by regulatory issues of consenting and, and having to document what these residents can do. And that is now it's become much more task oriented. They they essentially are given a list of minor essentially minor procedures that they have to fill out this list and get signed off on, you know, and then and then they become much more functional in the department, to be quite honest. You know. And that alone keeps them fairly busy. And then they do at, you know, a reasonable pace will participate in the bigger cases, that is for sure. And a lot some of that is driven by their own interest. But um it's certainly expected that they also get involved in larger cases and and you know scrub in and just see what it's like to evaluate the patient. So
2: yeah, that's interesting. So as the entire uh you know country sort of evolves from the IR fellowship as you mentioned before towards the integrated IRDR pathway. And with, you know, with more IR training, how is that going to change or is that going to change anything with your practice or the way your uh, program operates?
0: I don't think so, other than the fact that we'll have essentially fellows for a longer period of time, which will definitely be an enhancement to the IR fellowship. I mean, they will have to do other some more formal clinical rotations. We'll have them on the service longer, which will help with the research elements, meaning producing papers and posters and things of that nature. So that will be a definite enhancement now is that s- some magic wand in the gaining of independence by the i r doc from b r My own personal feeling is probably not you know I have seen a lot of different relationships you know i r docs that work with cardiology groups i r docs that work with surgeons i r docs that work alone docs that work with the radiology group, and I can tell you, probably the most durable relationship that I've seen is number one, IRDocs working in radiology groups.
2: Well, why do you think that is?
0: Because you're a radiologist. Okay,
1: <laughs> <laughs> you need
2: to be a radiologist, and as much as you want to shake that, you can't. Okay. <laughs> I ask that because, as you might have heard on the podcast already, we started to cover, you know private practice types like yours on the podcast and and we've we've started to see different opinions on the best way to practice you know the future of the field where people think it's going and there's definitely a a debate out there so that's that's the reason i asked yeah yeah
0: and it and of course, it will have everything to do with what the current relationship is with the IR, with their group. Ours right now is good, but it's not always been that way. It's been the typical testy nature, I would say in general, whenever we want to hire somebody or do something that's going to require some more assets, the group just naturally asks more of us in a business development plan. You know, like if I, if I want to hire another partner or I want to do something in the clinic like veins. oh, my God, I've got to do a, a full performa, you know, all the finances, and then when somebody you know wants to hire a imager in MSK, the guys get up and go, Well, we're really busy here." And everybody goes, "Yeah, you guys are." Okay, that's fine. We'll hire somebody. You know, I mean, that's the way that works. You know, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but not that much. You know, but the thing is, is yes, you know, you're out of a radiology program, so as much as you feel like you're a round peg in a square hole in a radiology group. You will be even more so in another group, you know. You will be even more of the outlier in a cardiology group or in a surgery group. You know, these people have different lifestyles, too, you know. I mean, surgeons take less vacation. They have their own patients, which means they're oftentimes taking their own call. You know, I mean, and to be honest, I, I don't mind one bit being attached to a radiology practice, because from a financial standpoint, it's a total winner, you know? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. You know, I, I always look at these, these maneuvers, and I guess I'm a little bit philosophically an outlier, but it's like, it, you know, you, you can't really totally distance yourself. I mean, you can, you can be an IR doc, like I said, and be your own practice, but you are giving up something with that. Okay. You're giving up something. And it's in, in many instances is not a trivial something. You know, would, would I have any interest in doing that right now with my current practice? No way, you know, no way, especially some finances. You know, I mean, the, the finances on cross-sectional imaging, at least currently, and it, it's pretty unbeatable in medicine.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a great point about the stability that pairing with uh, partnering with diagnostic radiologists brings. Um, and then something that I wanted to ask is um what kind of reading uh, responsibilities do you have? You know, what kind of studies do you read and what does the private practice at large expect out of you guys in terms of reading?
0: Yes. Okay. In my group, not a whole lot. We do read the non-invasives while we are on certain rotations. Like when we do the CTs and biopsies, you know, that's quasi imaging. (laughs) And then we do have some more mundane obligations. For instance, if I'm on the weekend and I'm working and there aren't any IR cases. And especially if I have a fellow on doing rounds, because we do have some weekends where we have no fellow. And so we have to do the rounds and the consults, et cetera. Um, yeah, then I'm charged with reading plane films. I mean, the last time I was on call on a Sunday, I read, I don't know, 60 plane films, you know? And so, yeah. So I have to do that. That's just, you know, being part of the team, I guess. And, uh, Makes a big difference for them. They, they like it when they see that from us. So,
2: so when that happens, is that something that you have like an inherent, like, um, not negative reaction, but something that you're like, Oh, no, this is like doing chores for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or is it something that you're like, Okay, this is a basis of my specialty still? Uh, no, I don't feel the latter. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> yeah. Because
2: I, I okay. have met some people who do feel I, like, right?
0: Yeah. No, I don't. Okay. I feel like I'm doing a chore. Okay. Do I want to totally give up imaging? But not, not purposefully. I mean, have I? Could I read MRs? No. Can I read CT? Sure. We look at CT scans all the time, but still, I won't read them the same as a body imager. But no, do I feel it's a chore to come in on a Sunday and read a bunch of play films? Heck yeah. You know, <laughs> but do I, do I feel like I'm going to get something from my partners out of it? I might get a very positive email or text later in the day that will be uh, shortly forgotten. Uh, when the next issue comes up. So, no, it's, <laughs> it's it's just, you know, part of those is something you got to put up with. You know, yeah. I wouldn't make any more than that, to be honest.
2: I think you're right. You know, no matter what specialty you're in, there's going to be those things that just aren't exactly what you want to be doing with your time. Oh, sure. And I think yes. that would be the case if IR is completely separated from DR or, or whether that never happens. You know, there's always going to be something.
0: Yeah. Well, sometimes I see when these IR docs go out and they start their own practice, the first thing they want to do is start cutting deals to read CTAs and non-invasive studies, you know. ah, uh, <laughs> same anything like the cardiologists want to do, you know. That's easy money.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. Just to follow up on that. So when you have fellows that are going out into the workplace or residents asking you about sort of job environments, what is the advice that you give them coming from where you've come from for your training and then where you currently practice now?
0: Mm. Boy, I don't know if it's if it's one. I mean, I usually kind of just listen to what is pulling them in the direction, you know. Because sometimes I've seen fellows go and take relatively mundane practices because they want to live in a certain place. And that's fine, you know. Yeah. And then others, you know, if they really want to do the clinic stuff, then I tell them, hey, listen, you got to listen for certain things for them to do it because you know promises are easy. But the residents, the fellows that come out of here, if they take a variety of positions, but there are still many of them that find very good jobs out there, especially like the year before
2: last last, guys, excellent jobs, you know, doing lots of vascular work. So Dr. Swischuck, when you think about the future of your practice and your training program of IR in Peoria, where do you see things going?
0: I mean, in general, very positive, you know, um, I, I just think we're really poised in the IR department. I'm going to knock on a big piece of wood here because, like I told you, <laughs> the current structure we have its like the first time I haven't been looking over my shoulder for who's the next you know, threat, if that's what you want to call it. So, you know, we've got a program where cancer is improving and it's quite good right now and the vascular is as stable as, as it's ever been. As far as, okay, then we flip the switch. And so I think from a training standpoint, it looks, looks good. It's real good. Now, when I look at our private group, okay, man, I, I tell you, I I was speaking with Narina the other day, and, and I I don't think there's any better time in radiology for from the business standpoint. And it's really all facilitated by the ability to employ people, utilize people that are living in different markets that can do the work for you, are willing to do it, uh, you know, really a salaried radiologist. I mean, You know, when I came out, if you were going to be part of this group, you had to live here. And that alone substantiated being a partner, you
2: know? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That alone. Because you know why? Because if you didn't make them a partner, nobody was going to come here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so they weren't going to come here. Now, okay, does everybody that works in this group and is reading films, A, have to live here? No. Then if you don't live here, do you have to be a partner? No. And the real litmus test there, whether you're right or wrong, is whether you're able to find somebody to work as a non-partner out there in a different area. And I can tell you, you can find it. That's not a problem these days. So, you know, this whole portability of the images and reading remotely, it's it's one of those double-edged swords. You know, people worry that it could undermine your group in a hospital. I don't really believe in that, okay? My uh, paranoia level on that is very low, okay? And I believe it's a, if it's a double-edged sword, the sharper side is on the side of radiology and the groups that are, you know, on the contracts. you know, you just, you just have to figure out how you're going to do it. But well, I tell you, to me, it's a great time to be in radiology.
1: Oh, that's so good to hear. I mean, I know, um, Ben and I are both thrilled um, about the field of interventional radiology. And a large part of that is due to, I know for me at least, uh, and I'm sure for you too, Ben, is the mentorship um, that we've received from attendings, such as yourself. Um, so having that is a huge asset for the future um, generation of interventional radiologists. So thank you, Dr. Swischuck, for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. And um, We hope you come on again in
2: the future. Yeah, it was fun. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. I think the perspective you've given is one that many students haven't come across yet. Um, And I think it is really going to be beneficial for people to better understand the different environments in which you can train and in which you can uh, one day practice.
0: Yeah. There is a lot of stuff you never learn, even in your residency program. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you. Okay. Thank you.
1: That's it for this episode.
2: Please keep an eye out for our upcoming episodes this season, where we'll be discussing life and IR fellowship, tips, women on IR, and much more.
1: If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you.
2: If you're a practicing IR who would like to get involved with the podcast, please contact us at our email address, thesoundofir, all one word, at gmail.com.
1: You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at the underscore sound underscore of underscore IR.
2: If you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast apps. See you next time.